and a warm welcome to the Centre-Left Politics Podcast with me, Carl Quilliam, and my co-host, Malcolm Clark. We hope you can share this podcast with your friends. This week, we're going to talk about the spring budget, Gary Lineker, a Tory MP being told not to stand. And we're also delighted to welcome the Labour Party candidate for the seat of Bishop Auckland, Sam Brushworth, who we will interview shortly before taking his opinion as part of our wider discussion on political news of the week. Welcome to Sam. Malcolm, how has your week been so far? It's been good, Carl. I don't think I'm quite as tired as you, but uh, we'll see how we go. Um, I feel like I've given you the short straw letting you anchor this week, but... uh, it's great to have Sam on and obviously another great guest for us, particularly ones that we want, which is a Labour candidate. So Sam, I guess I should say hello. How, how are you doing? Great, thanks. How are you doing? Yeah, great. Um, I, I was reading your biography and uh, quite impressed by uh, when you stood in Blackpool North in 2015 that you knocked on 9,000 doors. That's probably my worst nightmare, I think, but um, that's quite an undertaking. Well, that was over two years. Over two yeah, years. Yeah, spoke, spoke to 9,000. Yeah, yeah. Fan, fantastic. So the first part of that, we're just going to do like short interviews, ask you a few questions and uh, take your views, and then we'll move into the, the news section that Carl will lead on. And uh, so I guess the first thing, just to introduce yourself to our to our listeners, um, just tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into politics. So, so my background, I, I got into politics... Um, and into the Labour Party it, just ahead of the 1997 election. Um, now my parents were political, but they never they weren't activists. And um, ahead of the 97 election, somebody knocked on our door asking my mum if if we would deliver some leaflets. And I heard her politely declining. And I remember sort of running down the stairs and and volunteering to help. And it became the the delivery boy uh, for my constituency. And um, rest is history. Really, I was taken in by a great group of activists who were keen to, to have an enthusiastic, I think I must have been about 12 um, year, years old at the time, uh, so an enthusiastic lad who was who, who just wanted to help and, uh, you know, started canvassing about 16, 17. And I've been in the party ever since as an activist. I, I've lost count of how many by-elections I've, I've, I've rocked up at and how many uh, people I've helped to win council seats over the years. It's just something I'm really passionate about. So, um, what is it that really wants you, really makes you want to be an MP? It's the ability to change things. Um, so, a lot of a lot of my career has been in international development, working with some of the poorest, most vulnerable people on earth. Um, and then, my UK focused work has mainly been um, in the charity sector too. I used to run a charity uh, well the, a service of a charity for children and young people with disabilities while i was doing my phd and that was about sort of 2010 2011 during the the start of austerity and so i saw the rug being pulled out from under people's feet and i've seen the way that our country has gone downhill and and the way that life has got harder for people and we need to get back in power and you know I'm, so I'm 39, and uh, which means that I spent the first third of my life under a Tory government, the middle third under a Labour government, and the last 13 years under a Tory government again. And everything good that's happened in our country in the last 45 years came during those years that Labour was in power. And I'm just absolutely single-minded about getting us back into power. 
so I'm going to sort of pull you out of that politics for a second, but I want to ask you about the, sure. the, 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 the selection process because it's something that we have been following the selections of Labour candidates right throughout since they started to do it. And obviously we're very into... I think Carl's been a candidate before, um, not for Labour, but uh, he is Labour now. <laughs> he was a Labour Shock. Just, yeah, he was a Lib Dem, but he's, he's seen the light. And he's, he's right, seen, okay. So yeah. That's great. Um, and I've been a Labour councillor, but obviously a very different process. So I guess just to push these two questions together, what was the selection process like? Because obviously you're talking to a different... You're not on the door. You're on the doors, but not to the general public. And did you expect to win, or was it something that you just thought you'd have a good go at and see how see how it went? So on, on this occasion, I, I stood in my home constituency, where you know I was already the chair of, of Bishop Auckland Labour Party at the time. Um, I, I wouldn't say I expected to win because I'm never complacent, and I don't think we ever should be. Uh, but of course, I knew a lot of our activists and. I knew a lot of our councillors and, you know, and a lot of really good people in the constituency. And I knew I had a very good chance uh, because we'd already been working together, trying to re- rebuild the party post-2019. Um, in terms of what it's like, I mean, this time around, it, it's a lot shorter uh, than previously. And, and I think that's well known. It took, it, it took us a bit by surprise. Um, firstly, the fact that Bishop Auckland was one of the first seats to select and mm. and just how quickly it all came around. So it was it was quite bruising. You have to work really hard to get selected. And and all around the country, those that are getting selected, you know, it's it's a good test for how you're going to be in a short campaign. And it's about getting out there and speaking to as many people as possible. I think if there's anyone who's thinking of going for a seat, you know, one piece of advice that I would give is just don't write yourself off. Um, what, what often happens in these things is that people think it's a foregone conclusion that a particular person um, has it sort of sealed. And actually, what I've found about the membership of the party is the members really want a Labour government. They want to win and they want to see our values put into law. And they are looking for who they think is the best candidate. They're not that they're, they're not tribally loyal um, in the way that a lot of people think they might be. Uh, people who voted for me came from across the political spectrum, from from people that would have supported Jeremy Corbyn through to people that would have supported Tony Blair. And uh, so across the Labour spectrum, I should say, not the political spectrum, which is a bit wider. Um, but, but what people are looking for is somebody who's going to work hard and is going to represent them uh, and represent their area well. No, that's really so, interesting. Um, so, and I think I fall into that trap, Sam. To be honest, where you see your selection, and I always say that in my sort of my perception of it is the art of the selection is to be the obvious candidate by accident. Sometimes, or it can feel that way. But you, you're absolutely right. It's never over until it's over, and it's always worth making your case. Um, so, how do you? Because obviously, with the polls the way they are now, um, I know you. I know you won't admit this. So I'll I'll do it for you. Is, is sure. It, you might have a, a reasonable expectation that you might do very well. Um, so how do your sort of close family feel about you potentially becoming an MP? Yeah, I mean, I am going to push back against that and say that actually I'm absolutely terrified of complacency. And my earliest political memory was 1992. And I remember it well because I remember seeing the tears in my dad's eyes. And he wasn't, he wasn't someone who would cry often. Um, the devastation after 
I think what was it probably similar to this one 13 14 years of, of the Tories wrecking people's lives and then knowing that we'd have another five years of it and I think there is um, a danger actually that people do get complacent the polls at the moment look very good mainly because and I'll be absolutely honest you know so we've knocked a well, I don't know how many doors. We've spoke to 7,000 voters since July in Bishop Auckland. And it's fair to say that the Tory vote has completely collapsed. That doesn't mean that those people have come across to the Labour Party. And, and we still have a very long way to go to build to build people's trust in us and, and to, to give people hope. Uh, although we do have an excellent set of policies, the public, by and large, haven't heard our policies yet. And there's still this strong sense that that we you know that, that we don't know what Labour stands for, and so although the Tory votes collapsed, it, if they have a good year, it could easily go back to them, and and so it could actually end up being a lot closer than people think. Um, that was my first caveat, and I've forgotten the second part of what you asked me, which was about oh how does my family feel about me becoming an MP? Um, I think I think probably mixed feelings. It's, it's I've got teenage children and, and primary school age children, and I think already the fact that I'm running, um, it's it's both exciting and difficult for them. Uh, it puts a huge pressure on the family. And one thing we're really strict about is that the first thing I do when I plan my week is I block out some quality family time when the phone gets switched off and, and that's untouchable. And that's something we'll keep doing. Um, my teenage kids have their friends at the moment who sort of seem to enjoy Googling me during class. And uh, and they, you know, it's, it's obviously it's a big deal when you're a teenager. Um, my daughter just wants to know if I'll have an apartment in London. Um, but uh, <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think and, and, and my kids are fairly well, my older kids are fairly political as well. Um, they're, they're members of my oldest two are members of the Labour Party. Um, they they share our values and and they they've seen, I think, uh, I mean, anybody who's young at the moment has really been on the sharp end of what austerity has done because it's taken everything away from the rising generation. And I think they can see that. Did they vote for you in this election, importantly? <laughs> they they didn't. Um, they they joined after uh, okay. the selection. And uh, we, we, I was, they were, they did want to join, and I didn't want people to think that I had signed my kids up in order for them to vote for me. And so we deliberately waited until afterwards. Oh, fair enough. That's yeah. Um, I was gonna, I'll jump ahead. You, we were gonna ask you, I think, about polls tightening uh, before the the next election, but I think you've already, you've, you've made a really good case around that, and I think we'll probably talk about it a little bit more as well when we get to the budget discussion later. Uh, but obviously, Dehenna Davidson, the current Bishop Auckland MP, is not standing at the next general election. Do you know who your opponent's going to be yet? Have you got any thoughts on who it might be? We don't know who it's going to be. Um, I can see a couple of councillors who seem to have suddenly increased their activity um, and are showing up at everything, and that's a, probably a sign that they're going for it. Uh, I think there's every chance as well that Richard Holden uh, might consider it because, of course, the northwest Durham constituency is being broken up and probably about 40% of it is coming to us. Uh, so uh, he may want to consider it, but no, I mean, that, that's obviously a choice for the Tories and I, I don't even know where they where they are in that process. Yeah, I, I live in um, Concert and County Durham, so I'm a northwest Durham lad and uh, I'm not in that section. I think we, we're, we're moving off to Bladen, I believe. Yes, right. You'll be constantly laid and so you'll have this twist. Yes, that's right. And uh, so, yeah, that'd be quite weird because obviously it's fully carved up. Northwest Durham, it's completely 
slice and dice. So yeah, I think Richards, who by all accounts he's a he's a minister, he does appear to want to stay on. I believe there's no sign that he's thinking of moving anywhere else. So yeah, I I rather think that might be who you go up against. Um, but uh, yeah, we'll see how that pans out. It'll be interesting to see what he does if you know just generally. But um, so uh, just in terms of then your campaign as we come towards the end of the interview section, Sam. What you obviously said you yeah. spoke to seven thousand people so far, which is an amazing number in such a short time. What issues are you finding that are emerging on on the doorstep? So by far the number one issue on the doorstep is the cost of living, and that's being raised by people on relatively low incomes. It's being raised by pensioners. And it's being raised by people who, who you might think as of, of being a little bit more comfortable, people who are degree educated, um, middle class, um, you know, particularly, obviously, public sector workers, teachers, nurses and, and, and so on, that everybody is feeling the squeeze and everyone is feeling that their living standards are not what they used to be. Um, and, and that's that's by far the biggest issue. I think secondary to that but, but similar is this sort of sense of overall decline and being left behind and forgotten and there are pockets of uh, the bishop organ constituency that really have been neglected for far too long um and just uh, across the northeast we get less funding per head than anywhere else in the country and there are pockets in in bishop organ constituency that probably get less funding than anywhere else in the northeast as well so and people know that and, and people get quite emotional sometimes on the doorstep. A, a phrase I've heard a lot is, I just want my town back. So people talk, talk about the high street, they talk about the closure of services and, and just the sense that everything is being stripped away and that, that it's not the place that they remember. So you, you've, I think you've started to touch on this already, but um, I get this the last question really. Um, what are your plans for Bishop Auckland what is it that if somebody one of your constituents was listening to this now what would you want them to know about what you're going to do for the for the area I'd want I'd want them to know that I'm excited by the current Labour policy agenda and I, I actually think that we are going to have the best manifesto um, probably since 97 in terms of actually looking at what are the problems in our country and what do we need to do to transform the country for the long term. And looking at the economy, for example, we've got some huge opportunities um, in Bishop Auckland. And when I say Bishop Auckland, just, just so your listeners are aware, it, the constituency also goes all the way across to Barna Castle. And soon we're going to inherit all of Weirdale as well. So it's Teesdale and Weirdale. It's mainly a massive rural seat. Mm-hmm. Um, with the towns of, of uh, Bishop Auckland and, and Shildon and, and so on in there as well. And so one of the big opportunities that we've got is tourism. Um, so yep. having conversations about creating, um, and people may know that the Labour Party set up um, national parks um, around the country. We were the party that introduced that legislation. I would love to see a Durham Dales National Park and an investment in our tourism offer. And, and there has been a lot of investment in Bishop Auckland's tourism. Some exciting things that the Auckland Project's doing, such as opening up the, the Weirdale Railway line and so on. But I think it's really important to know you can't build a whole economy on tourism. And, and I think the other massive growth area that's gonna be exciting for us is the 28 billion pounds that Labour's going to invest in a green prosperity fund. Because 
we're surrounded by some great small engineering companies. We're sitting on geothermal power. We're in close proximity to where uh, to the sort of green hydrogen hubs, and and I think there's some real opportunities if we can seize it to. Uh, to, to create the right training and education in our local college um, in some of these uh, sort of green technologies, engineering, and, and to get that investment and make sure that County Durham, which once upon a time powered uh, Great Britain, that we can again and that we can do it with clean, renewable energy. Yeah, I, w- I was going to try and intervene and make a joke about um, there's only so many people that need to test their eyes. Uh, driving to Barmouth Castle, but you made a really good you made a really good case um, for actually you know what what a Labour government could do for your area, um, and it's it's really great to see that you know the, that you know and to Malcolm's point after the next election, uh, Bishop Auckland's going to have such a fantastic champion uh, in the Houses of Parliament. Uh, just as you mentioned, sorry, but as you, as you mentioned Barmouth Castle though and eye tests. That, that there's a sad truth as well that the that people with eye problems can no longer rely on the Richardson Hospital in Barna Castle being there for them. And, and one of the big challenges in the rural areas is, again, services have been stripped away. And I speak to people in some of the villages in Teesdale and they're travelling three hours on the bus to Middlesbrough for some quite basic outpatient procedures. And so having spoken about the economy, I think the second big focus area for me is to is to fix those local services and obviously Labour's got a really uh, promising um, policy around how we're going to get more nurses and doctors and midwives into the NHS but it's not just about recruiting um, and training more we also need to make sure that we make better use of the community hospitals that we've got and, and bring those services closer to where the people are. No, exactly right. And we've we've talked on this podcast a lot about the challenges facing the NHS, and that's a really good example of, you know, how how that makes it. You know, we talk in generalities often on here about funding and the and the kind of problems uh, that frontline staff are facing. But that kind of local example is you know it's really important that you know that's where it's hitting people and and affecting their lives. Um, so thank you so much for, for coming on and talking to us. We're going to um, keep you with us. And now I think we're going to go on to talk about the big news of the week, which obviously is the spring budget. Uh, Malcolm, do you want to sort of talk a little bit about that and what's what's happened this week? Yeah, um, I thought uh, the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, he, he, made, a, he made a long speech. Um, it generally goes on for about an hour, um, but it was at least that long. Um, I think the the key. I mean, we're speaking to a fairly educated listenership, so I won't go through everything. But um, the the key announcement I think that people would have been pleased to hear from was the energy price guarantee being maintained for an additional three months. Um, I remain very angry. And Shell's profits came out last week, 161 billion, and they've taken none of it in terms of their windfall tax. So I was personally feeling like that is a great specific example, and that's just a you know, one company, what they've made in the last year. So I feel like there's so much more. I'm pleased that that's been maintained because people need that support. But what I'm upset about is that there's there's more the government can do to pay for that and maybe pay for a bit more. Um, so I'm hoping that that's going to, you know, something that we, when we get back in, I know prices are forecast to come, start to come down. I don't, whatever that means um, in we don't know how fast, but, you know, I notice it myself and I'm in a fortunate position where I can afford to pay for them. I, I, there's a lot of people I know who I just sort of 
worry, wonder what they're doing now because they struggled before. Um, and it's just a horrible situation. I'm sure Sam's coming across people on the doors who are talking about that a lot. Um, so, Sam, I mean, obviously, feel free to give your views more generally than that, just that one issue. But how did you receive that and and your thoughts on the, the spring budget in, in general? Yeah, obviously, I was pleased that they did that. It was a no-brainer, really. The wholesale price of energy has fallen. And because it's fallen... Um, the, the amount of support that they'd already factored in was was not going to be needed as much. And, and so it, that was the right thing to do. But but actually, what have they done for us? Well, it's, we're, it's us that's paying for it. They're, they're loading the cost of that support onto the taxpayer instead of loading it onto the energy companies. So the energy companies still get to run away with their billions of pounds of profit. And we're the ones that are paying for the support that we're being given. Um, and so it's a bit of a con trick, actually. And I thought it was a con trick budget. And I fell for one of the cons. Um, one of the things that excited me was, and I, and I went on Twitter and actually praised the government for taking Labour's policy on childcare. Mm. And, and I thought, this is great, because when I speak to working parents, you know, there are two things that really hold them back. One is uh, public transport and not being able to get to workplaces. But the other is the cost of childcare that makes it difficult and almost actually not economical for, for some people to work. And so Bridget Phillips obviously has been putting a lot of effort into developing a modern childcare policy. And I thought, goodness, they've been listening. And they've obviously been listening to the voters that I'm listening to. And it turned out, and I, so I, I praised them for it, and then I looked at the detail and I realised, firstly, this policy doesn't even come into effect until after the next general election. So basically what they've done is they've they've looked at Labour's policies and they've gone, oh, the, after after 2025, the Labour Party is going to do this. So let's just announce it early for them and let them let them implement their policy after the next election. It's not something that they're doing for us right now. And then I looked and I realised it's even worse than that because it's only a sort of one-off payment to, to help schools start up with their wraparound care. And afterwards, they're going to expect that to come out of the school's budgets. Mm. And so there's no there's no sustained funding and support for this either. It was a gimmick. And I'm afraid it was a gimmick budget that was designed to look like they were on our side. But we actually know that when you look at the detail, whose side were they on? Again, they're on the side of the millionaires. Their, their biggest fiscal change was to give a big tax cut to the one percent absolutely and I, and I think i mean we can sort them out a manifesto soon if they want to announce the the rest of it but um it, yeah but it's just going to be if when we implement that eventually that down the line they're just going to say oh that was ours and it's just again a, a bit of a political trick carl what's your thoughts um i mean i think sam's said it all to some degree um but i guess the on the the flip side of that, it does show, yeah, to your point that they've basically stolen Labour policy and they're trying to implement it after the next election. Um, it does show where Labour is and the influence that Labour has and the fact that actually, you know, this this was, barring the energy announcement, which was pre-briefed, this was the kind of big centrepiece, really, of the, of the budget. This was the, the big, big spending element. Um, and the fact that, you know, Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak feel the need to do that, to move into Labour territory, um, I think is interesting and important. Um, it feels, you know, we, we've had 
months and months now of Labour on 50, 51% in the polls. So it's probably uh, you know, not surprising. But I think if we went back a year um, and said that that would be the case and that the government would be trying to you know, do something like that and sort of mimic a, a Labour policy, um, I think we, you know, we would have been very happy um in terms of you know just what it says about where we are as a party and uh particularly this far off from the next election yeah there could be an election may june you know that's likely to be pushed into the end of next year um but it's really not far now um and it's i think yeah all the signs are good for labor at the moment yeah um so do you want to go on the next one carl or do you want me to introduce it as the resident football person. <laughs> well, I think. Uh, well, I was going to say uh, before we get move on from the from the budget because it might be a neat link or it might not. It might die die on its um, proverbial. But um, <laughs> Jeremy Hunt had his. I think it was four E's or three E's. He had um, into, and that was the theme that he used. And I don't think it really kind of translated into the coverage. But I sat and watched watched him do it and it went on for quite some time he started with everywhere and worked his way through and it felt like it did feel like it was going on for a long time um but from that <laughs> from, from the fact that he launched into it with everywhere it was all for fans of uh ted lasso that listen to this podcast ted the new series of ted lasso on apple tv i'm not paid to promote that okay it was launched <laughs> it was launched yesterday, and one of the main characters has this this um, chant, which is "He's here, he's there, he's everywhere." Roy Kent, and it just that was in my head for the, all the rest of the day, um, and I was I was expecting a Jeremy Hunt meme to pop up somewhere on my Twitter feed, but I think I'm the only person that's sad enough. You're to gonna have, have to create that. this. You're gonna have to create it. <laughs> I'm the only one that's sad enough to have made that link, um, which moves us straight into Gary Lineker and uh, what's been what's been going on last week. I think it had happened just before. Um, yeah, he he got himself in trouble just before we recorded last week, but it it escalated um, to the point where it was in the news for quite a few days. Um, Sam, what what did you think about the Gary Lineker debacle, let's call it, and how the BBC's handled it? I mean, the, the, the BBC made an absolute mess of things, didn't they? Because what we basically had was a football presenter and a very well-loved football presenter. I mean, I'm, I'm of the age where, you know, he was he was my hero in World Cup 1990 when I was sort of a lad and, and first following football. He made it, he, he tweeted his opinion about something and the BBC was put under political pressure from the Conservative Party and from MPs to suspend him. And now, had there been a rule in the BBC that no presenter is allowed to tweet any political views, that would have been a legitimate thing to do. But of course, as you know, and, and this people are probably tired of seeing this pointed out, that you've got your sort of Alan Sugars, your Jim Davidsons, your, um, who's that top gear presenter? I can't stand Jeremy, Jeremy Clarkson. Clarkson. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the BBC has long had people who have been big public presence is on the BBC, but have been allowed to express their own personal political views. And the BBC has always maintained a line that they're allowed to do that because they're not speaking at the time as a BBC representative. I think that's the correct line to take, by the way. I, I actually think that, that, that it's perfect. In, in actual fact, I quite like knowing the position of 
of BBC presenters, rather than pretending somehow that no one has any bias and that everyone's impartial. I think it would be better, actually, if people were just a bit more honest about what their position is. But we'd make sure that the news coverage is impartial. So it was it was an outrage. And I think the BBC's embarrassed themselves. Yeah, I mean, I think I would only agree, but I'll, I'll bring Malcolm in and see what see what you thought, Malcolm. Yeah, there was some quite unedifying comments by the Conservatives. I mean, they, they were very critical of Gary Lineker and they were all jumping around and and shouting about it. And, the, you know, the BBC backed down, but they didn't call it a backing down. And one MP even said that the given that the ratings, the interest in match, match of the day was high, so the ratings went up because everyone was, I suppose, not necessarily expressing a view, well, almost certainly not expressing a view, but interested to see what would happen when there was no commentators and no punditry and the ratings went up and one MP said, oh, well, that means, you know, we should leave it like that because it's so successful. And you just thought, oh, come on. I mean, you know, so Gary's coming back this week. Um, it's all sorted out. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see the the very, the, the sort of cold open that he does on there because I'm sure you'll make a little, little, little mention of it. But, um, there was also some comments from the Ofcom chief executive and everybody got involved. Um, is there a chance, and I, I'll open this up to either of you who want to come in, that this could have an effect on, you know, because there's always that thing in the background of a lot of people saying, that, you know, they hate the fact that they have to pay the licence fee and you do hear that view coming through. Um, do you think this could have an effect on that? Is there real damage to the BBC? Um, do you want to come in, Sam? Or, um... No, go, go ahead. Um, I'll, I'll respond after you. Um, so I, I mean, I think the straight answer to that for me would be, I don't think it would. I mean, I think it's a, a real problem for the BBC's reputation overall. Um, and I think there's going to be some real questions to ask about the kind of BBC's leadership. It's, the, this has already raised those questions. You know, the comparisons have been made with the loan that was facilitated by the chairman of the BBC for the prime minister um, to Gary Lineker's what was you know a, a tweet in his own opinion. Um, so I think there are some real questions that'll be asked. But I think the the kind of the politics of that is that it's elements in the Conservative Party that would want to you know that have challenged things like, like the license fee um they are skeptical of the bbc they think there's a left-wing bias in uh you know certain parts of his programming that's why in part you know uh, all of this has kind of come about because the people at the top of the bbc are conservatives and they're sensitive to that kind of right-wing agenda for want of a better one of a better phrase um and I just don't think, no. I think, sorry, Sam. No, so on that, I, I'm not sure that they do actually think there's a left-wing bias. And, and I don't think there's a left-wing bias. I, I don't think there's a right-wing bias either. I actually think the BBC most of the time does a pretty good job of being impartial. I'm, I'm, so, I'm not one of these people that's sort of cynical about Laura Koonsberg and others. I think, I think most of them do a good job. I think it's not that they're worried that there's a left-wing bias, it's that they don't want there to be an independent broadcaster because they want there to be a right-wing biased kind of Fox News style media that dominates the UK. Yeah, and I think that was, um, it was sort of exemplified by GB News, I think, was uh, interviewing the, the Chancellor, um, and it was two uh, Tory MPs that were doing the doing the job, which is, you know... <laughs> Did you see almost... the SNP MP, call who mentioned that at the, the, the Select Committee and said the rules 
say that you're not allowed to do it. And they said that it was because GB News, clues in the name, wasn't a news programme. And he said that it was um, John Stevenson, I believe, Martin Stevenson possibly, I've got my other name wrong. And he said that, you know, it's quite clear that they were interviewing him and it, it's not allowed. And they said, well, because it wasn't a news programme and uh, that it was okay. And he said, well, I think GB News thinks they're a news channel. Um, and it was just quite strange how that rule just seemed to be completely broken and then completely left without any repair. Just, I always think, because I'm someone who, if there's a rule there, I follow it and I expect it to be followed, then there always seems to be ways. I think this is part of the reason why people get disaffected by politics because the political process always seems to find a way around stuff sometimes. And and to, to me, that I watched that clip and thought, and as I was watching him say this, oh, that's a zigger. They've got you wrapped up here. You're never getting out of this one. And they did. They just said, oh, no, it's fine. Don't, don't worry. And I just found that really shocking. And yeah, it's a really interesting one, that call about that impartiality thing, because that's not partial. Nowhere near. Yeah, no, exactly. And it's, um, yeah, it, it speaks to exactly what Sam was saying. You know, that's the the ideal for the Conservative Party, isn't it? There's little little genuine impartial scrutiny uh, channel set up by... Um... Jacob Rees-Mogg. <laughs> <laughs> Do you not think that, that a lot of this is really just a dead cat? That because because the government wants us to stop talking about their corruption, they want us to stop talking about how badly they're doing on the economy and public services and so on and so this is this is all just really an invention isn't it i mean how can it possibly really be newsworthy what a football pundit tweeted about a political issue and it actually went onto the front pages of national newspapers and and led bbc bulletins like how is that how is that news when 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 you think about all the big things that are happening in the world right now yeah, no, you. I mean, you're exactly right. And I've been, to some degree, uh, me and Malcolm can't talk because we've chosen to talk about it now. But um, it's a, it's a, it is it's ultimately a, a sort of silly story, isn't it? And it's, uh, you know, not knocked off the, the headlines, things that, you know, were much more important. And the actual story that it was about in the first place was kind of superseded, you know, the the kind of rhetoric and the, uh, the policies of the government on um, small boat crossings was completely overtaken by this kind of personality um, cult and the, the sort of the focus on Gary Lineker and what he should or should not have done. And that would have broken the hearts. Sure. It's all about. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, what are you saying? I was just saying, Sam, that would have broken the hearts as well. So there might be a bit of deflection happening there. But yeah, go, go ahead. No, but uh, so on, on small boats, though, they don't want us to look at the detail. Because what they want, they're fabricating these culture wars and they want to make everything black and white. And, you know, Gary Lineker bad because Gary Lineker is on, you know, he's woke. He's on the side of the refugees, not on the side of the people and this kind of nonsense. And they've, they've chosen with their Rwanda policy something that they know won't work. And they know it won't work for two reasons. Firstly, because... The numbers that they've actually agreed for Rwanda to take, even if they are to start getting planes off the ground, are a small fraction of the number of people that have arrived in small boats in the last 12 months. So they know that it doesn't really solve the problem that they're trying to solve. 
they also know that what they're doing is such an abuse of human rights that it's bound to get held up in the courts, which it will. And and so they know that planes aren't going to take off anyway. And, and, and what they're doing is that they're doing this so they can have a stick to try to beat the Labour Party with. And, and as Rishi Sunak, quite shamefully, I thought, and, and out of character for him, did at PMQs when he referred to Keir Starmer as another lefty lawyer. Mm. It's all part of the stoking of this culture war, because what they don't want us to do is to look at the fact that they've broken the asylum system. And, and, and they've broken the asylum system because of two things, because they broke the housing system. And somebody I know who actually works in the Home Office assessing claims told me on good authority that they were told to slow down the processing of claims because if they actually find that somebody should get settled status, local authorities don't have any housing to house them. Mm. So they've broken housing, lowest house building in a generation, and they've broken the asylum system because they've broken the civil service. Uh, and it's you know same reason British people couldn't get passports to go on holiday last year, because after 13 years of austerity, government has ground to a halt and it's not working. And they know that. Yeah, totally agree, Sam. Yeah, and, to- and a great point you make on the uh, the fact of broken housing. I know Carl's done a lot of work. He's, uh, he works in housing, so he's in comfortable territory there to talk about that for a while. Um yeah, we've talked about that a lot on this, haven't we, Carl, about housing? Yeah, and sort of going back to the budget, it was interesting that there wasn't really anything at all on housing. It was almost completely absent, barring a, a few sort of minor points that most people wouldn't have noticed. They changed the interest rate on the Public Works Loans Board, uh, which I think was changing it back from when they put the interest rates up not long ago, uh, which caused quite a lot of problems with local authorities trying to borrow to build. Um, They extended the mortgage guarantee, I think, by a year, uh, and they did something on nutrient neutrality, which I think was uh, widely seen as not being sufficient and in any case you know is nowhere near what the action that's needed on on housing at the moment so i think yeah 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 you're exactly right um the housing system has long been broken and it it seems to be getting worse not better um and we i don't you know i don't, I don't want to dive too much into the leveling up and regeneration bill but some of the legislation that the government's putting through at the moment uh, we talked about as mark said before on here um, is really not going to help at all um, and could leave us in a worse position in even just a year, 18 months. You know, if you, lo- you lose that, you know, when, when you're already not building enough homes, if you lose a year to two years worth of, of house building, waiting for a Labour government to come in to fix it, um, it's going to have a real impact. So I think we've, we've, we've dwelled enough on uh, Gary Lineker. Um, <laughs> So also this week, uh, Richard Bacon, the MP for Conservative MP for South Norfolk, um, is facing a fight for his political future, having lost his local party's backing. This is one of the we've we've uh, talked about this for other Conservative MPs before. Actually, there's been a few that have had this happen to them. Um, it seems to be coming a bit, it's becoming a little bit of a trend, as I think. Um, he's been an MP since 2001. Um, he's been accused of being missing by local residents uh, to the point that they've put up missing posters uh, all around the constituency. Um, it's unclear um, if he's now going to contest selection, but we'll uh, wait with bated breath. Um, Sam, b- before we get into the sort of 
issue of you know Richard himself. Um, as someone who's standing for public office, what's your thoughts on sort of visibility for new MPs? Do you think the expectations uh, have changed around that over the years for MPs about how you know the the need to be visible in a local constituency? I do. I, I mean, I actually think that it's it, being an MP today is harder than it's ever been because of the high expectations of voters. And I think that's a good thing um, because years ago, pre, pre-social media and, and so on, it was very easy actually for MPs to rock up occasionally to the place that they represent, take a few photographs, release them slowly to their local media through the week uh, because people weren't as connected, people didn't pick up on it. And uh, and I think there's been for a long time a, a culture of, uh, of, of rotten boroughs, of safe seats for both parties. And I think we've had our fair share of this in the Labour Party too. MPs who really don't see being an MP as a full-time job. And uh, it's something that is undermined trust in politics and, and something that I think we need to change. Um, you know, to me, this gets down to things like second jobs for MPs. And, and whilst there are sort of limited uh, circumstances, such as a doctor maintaining their medical license or whatever, where I think that, that it's okay, predominantly, I think being an MP should be a full-time job and you should have your home base be the place that you represent. And we, you know, we have a similar situation here where my, my opponent, Tiana Davison, she's standing down and I think partly why she's standing down is because she's actually got no roots in Bishop Auckland. Uh, she was a, a Conservative Party A-list candidate who having stood twice elsewhere. And, and so she she came here because it was one of their more winnable seats. But all of her family, all of her base is basically elsewhere. And if I'm elected, you know, my, my kids go to the local high school, local primary schools live in the town and I think that's how every MP should be because if you don't if you don't live and work in the community that you're representing you don't know it and you're not visible yeah Yeah. Malcolm I think you'll you'll agree heartily with that oh absolutely I mean I've always been in favor of local candidates actually Carl wanted to um put an asterisk on that that I was reading an article last week and it said um because I've always been a very fierce uh, supporter of, of local candidates to the point of I get a bit nervous when people, you know, in the classic thing in the northeast when someone's not from around here, the, the grandparents were miners, you know, and you start getting the sort of the, the, the cliched stuff. I mean, all my grandparents were actually miners, so if I stood, I'd almost be my own cliche in a way, but um, I'm actually legitimately from around here. But where there's like a safe seat, for example, where an MP's been in for say, I don't know, 40 years, something like say Harriet Harman's seat, you know, where she's, she's been MP for so long, someone from that area couldn't, you know, reasonably get her out so you know they would have to go elsewhere so i have some sympathy in in conditions where there has to be an allowance for someone to go elsewhere but when uh, sam gave that uh, overview there it reminded me of a, of a story i heard from robert rogers when he was chief executive of the house of commons that worked for pat glass who was the mp for northwest durham for seven years went down for training and he came in lord lesvain now and he said he was telling a story about an mp from way back in the ages i think it might it might not be a real story but it illustrates a point where the MP was sitting very gruff and someone came over and said, hey, old chap, what's the matter? He says, oh, I've had to, I had to go to my constituency last month. And he says, well, it's not a bad place. What's the problem? He says, well, I'm going to have to go next month as well. And it was kind of that sort of approach where people sort of want to be embedded in Parliament, not in the constituency. And I definitely feel that, you know, when Pat was in, she 
enjoyed the, the the local element more than she enjoyed the parliamentary element. But I think a lot of people will get seduced by Westminster and and very much prefer it down there. Um, from on all sides, to be fair. So I do think, for me, the the view, the expectations of MPs, I feel, has gone right through the roof now for someone like Sam just coming in. Sam, come on, come in. Yeah, can I, I, just want to, I just want to make an important distinction, though, because I don't actually have a problem with somebody uh, not being third, fifth generation in their seats. As, as your listeners will be able to work out from my accent, I, I had quite a nomadic childhood. I mean, I, I grew up in Blackpool. Uh, all of my family currently live in and around Bishop Auckland. Um, it's not it's not that you need to have it in your blood. It, it's it's that you need to have dedicated yourself you know I, I'm, I'm not here by accident of birth I'm here because of anywhere I, in the world I could have chosen to live and raise my family I chose to buy a house here and I chose for this to be my community and it's where I've kind of rolled up my sleeves and got stuck in and and I, I think we need to be careful and guard against kind of localism I suppose mm. where and it, it, it hurt me actually you talked about the selections earlier you know that some of the people who were opposing me in the selections kept saying that he's not local and and I thought, well, for goodness sake, I've lived here for five years. I've been embedded in the community. You know, that to me sounds like what you might say to an immigrant when you say, you know, you're not really from here, are you? And, and I think actually that's 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 never a value that we should ever express in the Labour Party. There's some really good MPs who who have moved in from other parts of the country. But the key thing is you do have to actually live and embed yourself in that community. And that needs to be your first love. Your first love should be the people that you are elected to serve and, and that it should be your full time job, the thing you get out of bed for. It shouldn't just be a sideline. I'm afraid for far too many MPs it is. And I'd, I'd really crack down on second jobs. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think, um, yeah, I mean, I've had to sort of check myself on on that distinction that can, you know, where it appears that I'm being too local. I think where I sort of it's a very specific type of candidate that I I'm against where it's quite clearly someone who's just, you know, arrested. Yeah. And and it sort of feels, yeah. it feels unempowering for the membership, but also, you know, yeah. I like to think because candidates who I support, candidates like you, because I'm, I was a councillor, Sam, so and I hold my hands up. I'm not a big fan of being on the doors. That's why I'm not really planning on standing again because I feel that people should do that. So the people I want to see rewarded are the people who are doing what, what you've been doing for years out there all the time because there are a lot of people on I'm not just talking about Labour here who don't like that bit but like the bit of getting in. Now I enjoyed being in, but I think you have to do the other bit as well. And I think that's that's the people who I want to see and I think the selection should be weighted in people's favour about who've got a demonstrable record of doing what I call the hard bit, but you wouldn't call the hard bit because you enjoy it. But for me that's the bit that I struggle with and I think candidates have to be talking to the public these days. Yeah, I mean, I I think you you both said it all. I mean, uh, yeah, I agree. If you're going to represent a community, you have to speak to them, understand them, uh, to be able to do that. Um, I think. Well, we haven't really talked about Richard Richard Bacon MP. Um, I don't know if there's anything you want to come in on, Malcolm, specifically yeah, I, on I, the case. Yeah, I was going to mention it. We had Theo Clark faced a similar situation. Um, it's it's an interesting one to sort of hypothesise on. I guess that's all it is because we, we we don't know the kind of ins and outs of his local thing. But he's been MP since two thousand and one, so he's he's been there a long time. 
it, the reason that I put that question in there for Sam, because then you obviously as a new candidate, you would have that enthusiasm. I wonder if Richard may may have have lost that enthusiasm, or, or coming from a, a time where he didn't have to do as much. Um, and I think I heard from you know speaking to MPs who'd been around a long time when I was in the office, and even going back five, six, seven years. Well, actually, it's been six years this May, next month almost since I left, so it's been a long time. But when I was involved, they said it had changed then, and I know it's changed again. And I, and I think it's a you know MPs who are already there have to adapt, and he's maybe not done that, so he's maybe operating in a way that was perfectly acceptable back then. But now the public expects a, a whole lot more, um, and it'll be yeah interesting to see what how how it's going to pan out. But you know it's he's not an MP who I know a lot about, and I'm someone who follows it very closely, so maybe that does point to something as well. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the sort of interesting bit to it, uh, and it's what I think we'll probably come back to, is that the ones that have had this happen to them have also often been critics of Boris Johnson. And there's been some, some of the narrative around it has been that actually it's the membership um, that weren't happy about weren't happy about that with some of the MPs for Richard Bacon and I, this is just from some quick googling while we've been talking He that's not the case, he defended Boris Johnson to the point where he said that NHS, NHS staff had also been letting their hair down during the Covid pandemic uh, in defence of him and was wi- rightly and widely panned for it um, so, um, yeah, I think th- I think this one might be um, against the trend, and it'll be interesting to see if that the trend of critics of Boris Johnson uh, continues. Um, so, I think we might have five minutes just to touch on um, the unions are well looking like they're close to a pay deal to prevent more NHS strikes. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about that, Malcolm. Yeah, um, the they've, unions are, are saying, and again, I'm not quite sure which ones, but they're saying that they would like to recommend that they, they go along with this offer. Uh, the 5% pay rise from April has been offered to NHS staff in England, including nurses and ambulance workers. Um, the staff have been offered a one-off payment of at least £1,655 to top up the past year's pay award. Uh, as I say, the unions recommend the members back the deal and this follows two weeks of talks with ministers um, and suggests that perhaps the dispute may be coming to, to an end. And the offer covers all NHS staff except doctors who are on a different contract. Um, so, yeah, a lot of lot of industrial action and, and, you know, you get the kind of polarising, don't you, with the people saying they shouldn't do it. And there's been a lot of, you know, government statements that I've found quite unedifying, saying that it's wrong and things like that, which I think, you know, well, I find that difficult. Um Sam, I appreciate this is quite a developing uh, story. It's not, it's nothing confirmed yet. But your views on this in general? Have you been following it so far? Yeah, you know, and I think the fact that the unions are recommending that people take this is a vindication for all of those who went out on the picket lines and, and and went on strike, because this is not a good deal. This is this is half the rate of inflation. So in actual fact, we're saying that nurses are going to get a real terms 5% pay cut in the last 12 months after, like a lot of people, seeing the value of their pay packets falling year on year since the global crash. And so this isn't a good deal. And and yet it looks as though they may be about to accept it. And, it, and, and the fact that they had to fight so hard 
to drag the government even to this point to me vindicates all those who actually went out and, and, and went on strike. And I'm not I'm not kind of on the militant left, you know, I'm not the sort of person who would always just call for general strikes. I think you've got to really think seriously when you make that decision to go on strike. And I, I, I was with a lot of the nurses on those days and the ambulance workers. My wife's currently a student midwife in the NHS. And so I've got quite a good grasp of, of the sorts of pressures and, and challenges that they're working under. And I've just got every sympathy for them, to be honest. And uh, and I think it, it, to me, it shows how bad the country is doing, that this is the best deal that the government can be dragged to. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I remember during COVID, a good friend of mine um, who I've known since I was about 11, she's a nurse and has been a nurse her full career. And she was saying to me how, and she was, she would come home and she was like, sometimes nearly in tears, telling me about it, saying how she, you know, with COVID, because remember during COVID, they used to get a lot of the silliness about people saying that it was overblown and, you know, the hospitals were empty and stuff like that. And silly comments used to hear. And um, she said, it's terrible, you know, we're watching people die. And so it's a really hard, it was particularly hard during that time. And they were, you got all the rhetoric around the heroes and the clap for cares. This is the time where you want to see them actually get what they deserve and get a deal that, that's that's right for them. And you're right. I mean, it's how the, the Tories will say it's 5% pay rise. In real terms, it's a it's a cut as well. But um, I'm, I'm glad they're getting something, but I, I totally agree that I wish it was more. Um, and it's a uh, you know working having worked on some some client accounts that relate to health. I know how difficult it is. Um, there's a lot of things that need to happen. Labour's got a good plan for health. Got a good strong shadow health team. Um, and I think the sooner we get in, the better for the NHS because it's always safer under Labour. Carl, what do you want to say? Oh, I think I think you said it. I said everything. With I'm, that I'm final, sure more you can add. final comment, Malcolm. <laughs> no, I think I mean to Sam's point. I I think. Yeah, he's, you're exactly right uh, that this isn't a great deal. And the fact that the nurses have taken taken that deal sh- is complete, does completely vindicate them. I think uh, most of the way through this dispute, it's appeared that the government wanted this argument, that they wanted to try and make uh, the unions, and not, not just the nurses, but transport unions and teachers and others, wanted to try and make them the villain. Um, and have this argument and have and they appear to have prolonged it because of that um and yeah it, the fact that we've got to this point now it feels like if the government hadn't taken that stance particularly you know over, over christmas um where there was you know the, there was there were opportunities um this could have been resolved sooner and the disruption you know may not have been needed at all um, but I think, yeah, the, the government really have to take the lion's share, if not in full responsibility, for for to this taking so long and getting to this point, I think. Yeah, well, but they stoked this issue because they, they wanted a winter of discontent and they wanted to pin the blame on the Labour Party. And it turned out the public were better than they counted on. And we found that, that the public are squarely behind the nurses. And you mentioned COVID. In our own community, a very popular GP and a nurse at least, and possibly more NHS workers died from COVID um, during that period. They were on the front line. And I think it's quite sad, actually, how quickly we've forgotten 
I think we I think we need to have memorials to these people. We need to have days of remembrance uh, for those who who gave their lives on the front line of the battle against COVID, and that includes all of our current NHS workers who who frankly deserve much better. I totally agree, Sam, because I think there's a, a natural wish to see COVID in our rearview mirror, and there's a danger that we 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 forget everything, including the good things, in terms of the hard work, the sacrifice that people made. Um, because I think I noticed it on like a sliding scale because I go down to London on a monthly basis and very gradually things went back to what we remembered as normal you never see people with masks on now you get on the tube and it's you know you can literally not move well that was unheard of and I also think that my reaction about being pinned to the back door you know of a, of a tube on a busy time at, at London Victoria station is is kind of that would have worried me more than it does now so you kind of we're we're adjusting, we're getting back, but we can't forget the good work that people did. Um, so yeah, I totally agree with what you said there. I think that there's definitely a strong case for memorials. Yeah, well, I think um, that just about brings us to the end of the podcast for this week. Um, a huge thank you to you, Sam, for joining us this week. Um, and as we always say to our guests, you're welcome back anytime. Um, also, as a candidate, someone who's out campaigning all the time, um, I'd like to give you the opportunity. Um, we're keen to encourage all of our listeners to get out campaigning on the doorstep. Uh, if there's any contact details, website that you want to mention now that people can go to to come and help you win next time around, uh, do say. Yeah, that, grateful for that because we are probably the hardest to win seat in County Durham that we have to win to, to get a majority of one. So if people are willing to give their time, Google me, Sam Rushworth. I think there's only two of us um, that, that you'll ever find. Uh, Twitter, it's Sam J Rushworth. Same on Facebook, um, samrushworth.co.uk. You'll find me. Brilliant. Um, before we leave uh, to our listeners, please remember to su- subscribe to our podcast and also give our Twitter a follow at CLP pod. Uh, we'll also, I'm sure, be uh, retweeting Sam, so you'll be able to find him on our Twitter feed as well. Um, Malcolm, do you have anything to say before we call it a night? Yeah, just uh, again, a massive thank you for me to Sam. Really insightful points of view and really enjoyed having you on. We hope that if we don't speak to you beforehand, we'll be watching your results and cheering if you do I think you'll be on the doorstep I'll be yes I will do that definitely but uh, (laughs) I'll I'll brave it I will sacrifice myself to 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 do that the last time I was out on a a big way was before the um, the 2019 election in Northwest Sunderland which was a a fun time it was it was I think I might enjoy it more with the the support that we're bound to win over the next few months in Bishop Auckland so look forward to that but yeah thanks for being on and thanks to everyone for listening (laughs) 